Before we get into the text for this morning, let me take this opportunity to thank you, students, faculty, administrators, for your hospitality towards me this week. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. I have learned much through personal conversations with many of you, so thank you. Let's just bow our heads for a brief prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would take my mouth and speak through it, take our minds and think through them, and take our lives and live through them. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the 1970s, there was a young uh, Russian philosopher, uh, Tatiana Goricheva, who was also a political dissident. This was during the Soviet era. She was not a Christian, uh, but in her yoga class, when she was asked to choose a mantra, that is a phrase or a set of words to help focus one's mind during yoga, she, for some reason, chose words from the Lord's Prayer. And so as she chanted these words silently every day in her yoga class, those words permeated her whole heart and body, and eventually, after some time, she came to become a Christian and was baptized. Because of her politically, political activity, uh, she was given the choice by the Soviet regime of either imprisonment or going into exile, and she chose exile. And she eventually found her way to this country. <clears throat> In her biography, uh, she writes these words. After coming to the U.S., I saw my first religious broadcast on television, I thank God that we have atheism and no religious education. That is in the Soviet Union. Because what this man said on the screen was more likely to drive people out of the church than all the clumsy chatter of our paid atheists. Dressed up in a posh way, the self-satisfied preacher had to talk about love. He was a boring, bad actor with mechanical and studied gestures. He was faceless. For the first time, I understood how dangerous it is to talk about God. Each word must be a sacrifice, filled to the brim with authenticity. Otherwise, it's better to keep silent. In the passage that was read to us, a fairly lengthy passage from my favorite Pauline letter to Corinthians, we find the Corinthian church confused about Paul. He was their spiritual father, they owed their Christian lives to him, and yet in recent days they had appeared on their doorstep a group of men with uh, letters of recommendation that they seem to have written themselves, uh, and they 
planted seeds of doubt about Paul in the minds of the Corinthian believers. They took every opportunity to ridicule Paul, to poke fun at him, and instead they painted an impressive picture of themselves. They claimed to be superior apostles, and they did this by exploiting certain assumptions that were prevalent in Hellenistic culture. So even though they appeared to be Jews, they exploited these Hellenistic assumptions. For example, the Greeks and the Romans despised bodily weakness. And the traditional picture that we have of Paul is that he was short of stature, he was bald, perhaps he had a squint in his eye, he was not an impressive figure. They also admired polished speech and Paul seemed to speak in fairly ordinary ways. He, he was not trained in rhetoric. He wasn't an orator. Also, in that world, the more important a lecturer you were, the higher the fees that you charged your audience. And Paul seemed to be preaching without asking the Corinthians for any money at all. So how could he be an important speaker? Again, you expected a religious leader to talk about the great visionary experiences that they had, but Paul didn't talk about visions and revelations. And so the Corinthians were troubled and began to question Paul's authenticity. So in these closing chapters of the second letter to the Corinthians, you find Paul on the defensive having to speak about himself. But more than his personal reputation is at stake because he sees that here is a spirituality at work which is very different to the spirit of Jesus. Indeed, he says in chapter 11, verse 4, that another gospel is being presented to these naive Corinthians. So you find the Apostle Paul in a very tricky situation. He has to now defend himself to his own converts, and he has to do it by talking about himself. So he resorts to irony, because the situation itself is so ironic. So chapter 11 opens with his words, uh, please put up with a little foolishness on my part, he says. If you think I'm a fool, bear with me, because I'm going to play the fool. So can I tell you how I feel about you at the risk of appearing more idiotic? Verse 2, I feel jealous, a divine jealousy, because I promised you to one husband, Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to him. So here is a mixture of outrage and deep concern. He's saying these pseudo-apostles whom you're listening to, they're just religious playboys. They want to flirt with you. They want to seduce you. They don't have your best interests at heart like I do. Also, if you look down to verse 20, he says, well, they have established an authoritarian style in the Corinthians church. They slap you, they enslave you, they take advantage of you. 
and yet you embrace them. This is a model of leadership, says Paul, that is so contrary to the spirit of Jesus. So just to repeat, the three principal charges that they made against Paul were one, that he was unprofessional in his style of speaking. And Paul's response, you find in verse 6, I may not be a trained speaker. In other words, I've not gone to a formal theological institution like Asbury and followed a course in homiletics, but I do have knowledge. It is the content of my message that is more important than the style. Secondly, he doesn't charge fees for his work. So Paul's response in verses 7 to 9 well, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied all that I have needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. And then thirdly, Paul didn't talk much about himself. Where were the supernatural, the miraculous experiences that he has had? Because these pseudo-apostles were constantly talking about visions and revelations that they seemed to have received. But when it comes to talking about himself and what God has been doing in his life, Paul seems to drag his feet. So he's forced now to boast, to talk about himself. So he says to the Corinthians, well, do you want to hear my claims to spiritual authority? Well, let's begin with race, pedigree. Verse 22 onwards. Are these people Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He's forced to present his pedigree to remind the Corinthians that he is no less a Jew, no less trained in the Hebrew language and heritage, no less an heir to the covenant with Israel than those who are opposing him and ridiculing him. Well, secondly, let's turn to achievements. It was common in that day for public figures to write what were called self-praise catalogs. It's write, like writing one's eulogy even before one's death. And that was pretty common. Uh, and it was expected of all great public figures. We have many eulogies or self-praise catalogs of the Emperor Augustus inscribed on monuments in many provinces of the empire. Augustus's self-praise catalog is called Res Gestae in Latin. And I want to read to you a brief extract from such a eulogy. So please bear with me, it's a little long. So this is Augustus writing about himself. I undertook civil and foreign wars, both by land and by sea. 
foreign nations that I could safely pardon, I preferred to spare rather than to destroy. About 500,000 Roman citizens took the military oath of allegiance to me. Over 300,000 of these have I settled in colonies. I've taken 600 ships. 21 times I have been saluted as imperator. 55 times has the Senate decreed a thanksgiving unto the immortal gods for me. Nine kings have been led before my car in triumph. Thirteen times I have been consul, three times in my own name and five times in that of my adoptive sons or grandsons, I have given gladiator exhibitions. In these exhibitions, about 10,000 men have fought and about 3,500 wild beasts been slain. I have cleared the sea from pirates, and in that war with the slaves, I delivered to their masters for punishment 30,000 of them who had fled their masters and taken up arms against the Republic. So you get the flavor of these eulogies, don't you? Notice that numbers play an important part in such an eulogy. Now, what would we expect Paul to put on his eulogy, his curriculum vitae, his job application? Well, we might imagine Paul saying something like this. I have planted more churches, written more books, won more converts, performed more healing miracles. I have more YouTube videos and Instagram followers than anyone else. No, he begins with talk about his imprisonment, as shameful then as it is now. The book of Acts does not give us anything like a full account of the sufferings of Paul. For example, at the time when Paul was writing, Luke has recorded in the book of Acts only one imprisonment of Paul, and yet in that uh, document one Clement, a document dated at the end of the first century, we read that Paul was imprisoned on seven different occasions. Verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. This was a normal form of corporal punishment that was inflicted in synagogues and Jewish courts. The Old Testament law limited punishment to 40 strokes. The whip that was used to, to beat a prisoner had three thongs. So 13 blows, that is 39 cuts of a whip, was the maximum. Otherwise, you were in danger of exceeding the legal limit. Well, Paul says, I have suffered the legal limit five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was a Roman form of punishment. So Paul also ran foul of the Roman judicial system, even though he was a Roman citizen. So these public beatings were both shameful and physically agonizing. 
So you see what Paul is doing here is he's presenting a superb parody of the self-praise catalogues of the Greco-Roman world. Then he goes on in verses 28 and 29 after speaking of all his uh, shipwrecks, his uh, danger from bandits and so on. He says, beside all these sufferings, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't burn inwardly? This is no professional manager running a superb Christian organization from a well-equipped air-conditioned office or a book-lined study. Here is one who is ministering on the coalface, embracing the pain, the struggles of the congregations that he served. And Paul is deploying all his emotional energy no less than his considerable intellectual powers in his ministry to the whole church of God. And then his self-praise catalog culminates in verse 32, verse 33, with the event that shattered the residual pride in Paul the Pharisee. In Damascus, he writes, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. In the Roman army, the highest military honor, called the Corona Muralis, was given to the soldier who, when a city was siege, under siege, the, the soldier who was first up the ladder in assaulting the city. Nine times out of ten, he was killed, and the award was given posthumously. Paul says, I was the first down the ladder. The hunter became the hunted. So that must have really shamed him. And he turns upside down the glorious image of the spiritual superman. And then in the next chapter, he goes on, let's continue our boasting. You want to hear about supernatural experiences, visions, revelations? Well, modesty prohibits him from speaking directly. So he speaks of a third person, a man in Christ. But Paul is a poor actor. He can't keep up the pretense, and so he slips back eventually into the first-person language. But there are several things that are worth noticing about this experience that he recounts. A, it was a rare occurrence. He has to look back 14 years to that experience. B, it was unique and ineffable. He did not know what was happening. He finds it difficult to articulate. He says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It was something that I just cannot really talk about. See, it was an experience that was for him alone. It was not something to be broadcast to others or used for self-promotion. It was purely for his own edification. 
And notice verse 6, Paul refuses to stake his claim to spiritual authority on any subjective, inaccessible experiences. He says, I refrain so that no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I say or do. We are often worried that people are not thinking of ourselves more highly than we are. You know, uh, sort of think they're thinking of themselves less than we would like them to think. But Paul is concerned with the opposite. He wants people to judge him purely by what he says and what he does. Because only actions and words count. And then he goes on to talk about this thorn in the flesh that was also given to him to keep him humble after such an extraordinary experience. And as you know, scholars have spilled so much ink speculating as to what this thorn in his flesh might be. Uh, anything from perhaps malaria or some eye problem that he suffered from, but clearly it was something that caused him deep pain, physical pain. He speaks of it as something given to him, implying that it was ultimately from God, but he also refers to it as inflicted by Satan. So whatever Satan may have intended, God overruled. So Paul prays three times. He says, I pleaded with God to take away this thorn. And the answer that he was given is, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That Paul, with his thorn, was more usable in God's hands than Paul without his thorn. So it's good to learn that prayer is not a magic wand and that God often, for good reasons, does not answer our prayers in the way that we would like. So God's grace is going to be more effective in Paul's life because God's grace is given into the hands of weakness and inadequacy and vulnerability. So in these verses, we are given, reluctantly, a moving and intimate portrait of Paul by Paul himself. And the question that God puts to us today, just as he did the Christians at Corinth, is what kind of Christians do we want to be? Sir Ernest Shackleton was a well-known explorer in the early years of the, 20th, of the 19th sorry, 20th century. And there's a legendary advertisement by Sir Ernest Shackleton for a 1914 expedition that he was planning to lead to the Antarctic. So this is how this advertisement went. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. I conclude with verse 4 of chapter 11, where Paul refers to 
another Jesus that was being preached in Corinth. These people presumably were not denying anything in the Jesus that Paul himself proclaimed, but the question was where did they lay the emphasis? The society of their day had no time for weaklings, let alone victims of crucifixion. They were perhaps preaching Jesus as a divine man, like, say, the Greek hero, Hercules. They emphasized, perhaps, uh, the miracles that Jesus performed. A divine man, rather than a word made flesh in a cattle shed. They were not preaching the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who wept over the city of Jerusalem, or who wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. So they were preaching a Jesus of glory, divorced from the Jesus of suffering, a one-sided theology. The balance of truth is as important as the truth itself. And the great lesson that the Corinthian Christians and us need to learn is that true spirituality is weak. It looks ordinary, just like Jesus, who was ordinary, the man of sorrows, the word made flesh. Let's pray together. Again, just a time of silence to collect our thoughts, to respond to God in the quiet of our hearts. Father, our prayer once again is that your spirit may form us into the likeness of your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat>